Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Suited for Good podcast. Uh, my guest today is an incredible human being, and I'm super grateful to know him. And uh, first time I met Tommy, actually, uh, I didn't know I was meeting Tommy. We had this event where um, Mission Six Zero, a company uh, that uh, Jason Van Camp started, uh, anyway, they, they help. It's a team building exercise. Anyway, there was this, uh, this kind of exercise. We didn't know what was going on, but the next thing I know there's gunshots and everything. And then we're trying to rescue a hostage, a hostage. And anyway, it was just kind of madness. And, you know, there's airsoft guns and everything, but it felt so real. And we run up to this hill and, and, uh, we're supposed to save somebody. We didn't know what was going on. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm trying to hoist this man up on my back that has no legs. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but that was Tommy. And he was, uh, he was role-playing someone who had just uh, been severely disabled by a, a bomb of some sort and laying on the ground. Um, that actually was his reality. And here we were years later. Uh, basically doing some exercise, a team building exercise, and, and I was carrying him. And then I didn't really get to meet him until I think it was maybe a year later. And this guy's incredible. So he is, his story is just, it took two episodes because there was so much there and it deserved every second, as you'll see, as you listen to this episode. So without further ado, um, yeah, welcome to this amazing story. I feel grateful to be able to share. All right, I think we're uh, we're good to go, Tommy. So, uh, Tommy, yeah, tell me what's your first and last name, and, and <laughs> let's let's do that. I mean, we did a sound check to, before we started, but I think we need to. Re- I think we, we need do to it again. That again. Okay, so. my name is Tommy Parker. T O M Y P A R K E R. <laughs> what did you say after that? You said bring oh, you the hit. What? Oh yeah, I said I sound like the radio. This is KWXY bringing you today's hits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it, man. So okay, um, Tommy, thanks so much for joining me on on the uh, the Suited for Good podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, Tommy and I have Tommy and I have a good friendship. We go back a couple years now, and uh, man, I was so uh, so stoked to be able to have you join me and just have a little discussion. So maybe we can start, uh, you know, where you were born and what, uh, what family life looked like for you growing up. Sounds good. Um, so I was born in Ronan, Montana, this little tiny town, uh, in Northwestern Montana. And when I say little tiny, we're talking like 2,100 people. I think there's more people that live on a block here in Salt Lake city than there were people that live in, uh, my hometown. Um, graduating class in high school, 96 people. Like that's how many we, we had a total of 350 in the entire school. Um, I was raised by a single mother for a good portion of my life. I had some various stepdads as my mom tried to find, uh, um, love and happiness is how we'll describe it. Um, and, uh, uh, my second stepdad, he was a tough dude, kind of taught me how to, uh, taught me how to box. You guys that are listening to this, I'm doing air quotes. I think it was a reason to kind of, he, he toughened me up, but also was, a man needs to know how to, uh, throw his hands. It's kind of, I don't know, without getting into that, it, it, uh, it started my life off in kind of a tough curve, if you, if that makes sense. Um, just and, learning how to 
Just learning how to fight? No, not, not necessarily. So I was, I was trying to downplay it a little bit. Uh, he would beat the crap out of me under the the guise of boxing, um, and uh, and and nothing like like crazy, crazy. Like I'm not saying he would like hit me with a belt and be like we're boxing. Like no, he just he he would like strike like a man and be like keep your hands up, boy. <laughs> and, and so, um, how old were you when seven? When he was, probably when, when he was started doing quote, this, teaching you how to box. Yeah, I mean, probably around seven. Uh-huh. Um, and and it it went on uh, off and on i mean the, and i don't want to take away from the dude's a great dude he just had no idea how to be a dad at the time he was 35 he had never raised kids he comes in and he has a a, a boy that's 7 and he's he's like oh i guess i'll make him a man then and so nothing against Doyle. Doyle's a good guy and i like him but i just i'm trying to paint a picture of kind of my my home my home life um i was a kid that got in trouble a bunch when i was young uh i ended up i'm the oldest of four siblings and so um According to counselors, I thought that the only reason I could get attention was to to get negative attention, and so that's kind of what I would do. I would act out. Uh, ended up being beneficial as I became an adult because uh, I'm kind of funny and have no shame. So people like because I would always steal the attention of the class when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, and then uh, raised in a a very tight knit extended family um, until my grandpa died. Like we were always all around each other. Um, all of the, like all of our houses were on land that we could see each other's houses, that land that my grandpa bought when, when he uh, first came to Montana. And um, so like a pretty good family after my grandpa passed, my family kind of dissolved and, and each individual family kind of went their own way and, mm-hmm. and does their own things now. Um, but that's kind of, uh, an overview of what my childhood was like. Is there anything you're looking for specifically, BJ? No. Um, what, so you mentioned your grandpa, were you and your grandpa tight or was he just kind of the overall glue? He was the overall glue. I my grandpa died when I was, um, in elementary school. I want to say it was like 1996. He had a heart attack or something like that. Um, but he was, uh, it was the glue. I think it was more so because his children were scared of him. He was a he was a mean Irish man, um, and mm. and uh, uh, grew up. He was an alcoholic and kind of and so like his kids just kind of uh, obeyed him because when they were younger he ruled with an iron fist. And so if if Chuck said jump, they they just jumped. And then after they jumped, they were like, was that high enough or should I jump a second time? Uh, and so interesting. So um, you have three younger siblings. Then? Yeah, and I have two sisters and a little brother. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So seven years old, stepdad's teaching how to box yep. in air quotes. Yep. Um, and then what, uh, causing trouble at school, getting into trouble at school, yeah. class clown type of a thing. Yeah. Okay. So tell, walk me through junior high. What was, what was junior high and high school like? Um, so, uh, I didn't add elementary school. Uh, I was really soft and kind of got bullied and stuff. Um, mm. uh, and it wasn't actually until middle school when uh when Doyle came around and and stuff like when I kind of started toughening me up a little bit that I realized the power I had being a being a big dude um and then so element or middle school I played sports I wrestled from kindergarten all the way through high school except my junior year um I played football as soon as I was able to starting in middle school um I thought I would be able to make it to the NFL and this is this something important to any young listener that that might have goals like just because you say something out loud doesn't mean it's going to come true. The whole time that I was young, I was like, oh, I'm going to make it to the NFL. I'm big. I'm strong. I'm got it. Like I didn't take high school serious. I didn't do the schoolwork that was needed in high school. I went to high school to play sports and hang out with girls. Um, and then when it came time to try to go to college, the, the colleges were like, hey, your GPA is telling us that you're not going to graduate. So we can't give you a scholarship coming from the, the 
small town I came from, my family didn't have the money to send me to school. You know what I'm saying? And so without scholarships, school wasn't an option. Mm. And so going back to that, if you have a goal, like, stay focused on it. Just saying that it exists. Like, this is what I'm going to become. Like, that that's only part of the battle, figuring it out. And actually, I just recently learned this. Um, something like 83% of America doesn't have defined goals. If you mm. look that up, it's really no, weird. No, interesting. And only like 3% has written down clear defined goals. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So now now in your uh, your old age, yeah. which is not old, uh, 34. But that's, that's something you've learned that the, the goal is only as good as, as it might be written and, and interesting. But I think, I think a lot of kids kind of fall to that, right? Or we, we all do. It's like, Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna do this, but actually following that through. But I think that's such a, just a good point to any kid listening is like, Hey, school's a big, school's a very big part of life. Like it, so- intelligence is something is the most powerful thing that can never be taken away from you. Like, um, we'll get to it later, but uh, I stepped on a bomb. I lost my physical ability to do some things, but my intelligence has never been dampened except by myself. Mm. And so if you take the time to garner as much intelligence as you can, it makes you super powerful in a way that nobody can, can ever dwarf Mm. that. They can't take it away. Oh, I love that. We are going to get into that. And I'm, I'm excited to hear you tie that back in because yeah. Okay. So let's keep, uh, so college isn't an option. No. Okay. Um, yeah. It, so then what? What did you do when you graduate? Did you graduate high school? I, I did. I okay. graduated high school. I, actually, my senior year, um, and this is why I was saying that, like, hey, take stuff serious. So going all the way through school, like my junior year, I caught some uh, some criminal charges. Um, I was under investigation for negligent arson. I was playing with some fireworks, being a dumb high school kid in a rural community threw fireworks in the bed of one of my um, football coaches' trucks, and, like, it caught some stuff on fire and and just dumb stuff, trying to have um, – air quotes again. Please don't do what I did. Uh, have fun. Um, and, like, I just – I kept getting wilder and wilder. And then um, my senior year, for some reason, something in my head changed. And I came back, and I was on honor roll. I had a 3.5 GPA. I actually lived on my own for most of my senior year. Um, and uh, everything was just different. But – it was too late, you know, too far, too gone by that time. And so when I graduated, um, I ended up working for my uncle Rick uh, as an arborist. So I cut down trees and did stuff like that. And I did that for close to a year. And a guy I went to high school with approached me and he was like, hey, I'm home on deployment. or I mean, not deployment leave, but recruiter uh, assistance. And I need people to go talk to the Marine Corps recruiter for me. Will you, will you do it? And I was kind of, I was like, I don't know, man. I talked to him in high school. And when I tried to talk to him, the guy was like, hey, you weigh too, like, you're too fat, were his exact words. Huh. And he's like, um, he's like, when you lose the weight, because they have height and weight standards and stuff. And I've always been a big boy. And he's like, when you lose the weight, come back and talk to me. And I was like, it's uh, wrestling season today. Like, I'll lose the weight today. And no, 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 no. Huh. And it, it kind of upset me and put yeah. a bad taste in my mouth. So yeah. I was like, no, I'm not talking to those guys again. Yeah. Luckily, the second person that I spoke to at the recruiter's office was a cool dude from Montana that it was a wrestler as well. And, um, and I told him, I was like, I want to be in the infantry. And he's like, no there's, no, there's no infantry spots available. And I was like, okay, bye. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. Let me get your information in case I find some. Like, and so they try to fill it, like all the other slots that people don't want. You know what I'm saying? Go be like a water technician and stuff like that. And then the cool jobs, like once those are full, like, okay, now we'll take people. Interesting. So just before I apologize for that. Uh, I had to clear hey, no worries. You had to clear through. Um, just to just to go back just a second. Yeah. Before we get into that, 
you just casually mentioned that your senior year, you kind of just lived on your own. And that's yeah. not, I mean, it's normal for you, but for a lot of even our listeners, like that's not, okay. you know, that's not terribly normal because you're, I don't know, I guess it depends on who the listener is. It's yeah. like, no, actually I live with my, my family what? until I'm a, you know, graduate from high school, but. Tell, tell me how did how did you end up living on your own? There was there was some difficult family dynamics at home because of um, my temper and I, I had a short temper as a kid. My mom um, had find her now uh, set, uh, sorry third husband, great guy. I really liked him. They're still married to this day. He's still my stepdad. But at the time, I I I went from Doyle to Tim, and I didn't and I was looking at Tim as Doyle, and I was looking at both of them as not being my real dad, Chris. Yeah. And I didn't want them around. And the first uh, stepdad, I wasn't big enough to do anything. The second stepdad, I was bigger than. And so I was just mm-hmm. like, no, you can't tell me what to do anymore. I'm big. And uh, it caused a horrible dynamic. So I ended up moving out and moving in with my cousin, um, Tim, who was also named Tim. Um, and uh, uh, he was 21. And I was, um, I don't know, 16 or 17 when I moved in with him. 17. And uh, um, I lived with him throughout my entire senior year. Um and I have to, I have to be in, if we're being full transparency, cause we're telling my story, uh, I drank heavily that year. Um, I would, uh, go to school. I would and do my school stuff after school, go, I worked a full-time job my senior year at, after athletics and on Saturdays and Sundays. And then when I would go back home to my trailer house at night, it, it wasn't uncommon for me to drink, uh, 10 or 12 beers or whatever at the end of the night and go to bed and then get up and go to school the next morning. Um, but I was raised by people that, that uh, believed that if you worked like a man, you could drink like a man. And so I think I drank my first beer when I was 12 or whatever, when I killed my first deer. And hauling hay, drinking beer with the guys and stuff like that. And it's like, it taught me, um, which is interesting when we get into my story later. It's like, I've never had a problem with drinking at all. Um, like, I can drink or not drink. It doesn't bother me. Um, and to the, like, right now in my life, like, I don't drink at all. I don't like being drunk. I don't like how alcohol makes me feel. There's nothing positive that comes from alcohol, in my opinion. Yeah. But when I was a kid, it was part of the the rural farming culture. Everybody drinks. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, even from the age of twelve. Yeah. yeah. Like it. I I had a, a sifter of brandy when I killed my first deer that was poured by uh, an uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Just this is this is what we do. Man. Write a passage. There you go. You took something's life. Here you go. You can get drunk now. It's really it, and uh, that that's something that's a common theme across a lot of rural America in the yeah. in these farming communities. Yeah, interesting. Okay, thanks for sharing that. Okay, so senior year, you know, it it uh, hearing that for someone like me who just grew up so vanilla, like you know, uh, understanding that you're having that life. You're working full time. You're drinking after work. And, and you're still somehow getting your schoolwork done and sports. That's a lot. That's a lot to manage, especially for a 16 or 17 year old kid. So, man. And that's what frustrated me as an adult looking back at freshman, sophomore and junior year is like, I was able to do so much more my senior year than I did the first three, sheerly out of effort because I was willing to put more effort in. These are things I wanted to do and I understood that I needed to do. Like, um, I grew up, uh, in a family that we didn't have extra, we'll put it that way. It, it really ever, like it was, everything was very tight. Hey, no, we're, we're people that can't buy that or this or that. And so from the point that I got a job until now, like I've never allowed myself to be broke. Like I just, it's not a thing that can happen. Um, I won't be poor again, if that makes sense. And so like, 
when I was young, like, oh, I'm tired after. No, like, I, I need gas in the car. I want new shoes. I need the new phone. Like, and so I was expected to provide myself those things. And so it made it a whole lot easier because it was very clear. Like, if I, no one's coming to help me. If I don't get those things, I won't get a new phone. If I don't go to work, I can't buy the, the gear I need for, for football or whatever it is. Um, and, 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 if my mom listens to this, like she worked very hard, like single mother of four, like she worked as hard as yeah. she could, sometimes three, four jobs. But when you're the when you're the only breadwinner in the house, it's really hard sometimes. I I agree a hundred percent. I think the single parents out there that just bust it and work so hard, they just don't get enough credit and love. No, so, and, and it's even worse in today's economy, man. Yeah. Okay. So your senior year, you're you're just busting it. And um you graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's go back to the recruiter because mm-hmm. that's where you're start. You were starting to go about the recruiter. Okay, mm-hmm. so second recruiter. Well, hey, I'll call you if something comes up. Basically, yeah. Okay, so um, tell me more about that. And so this dude's name was Howie. Super cool dude. Um, he's from Chinook, Montana, I think. But uh, yeah. And so we ended up um, ends up getting the contract lined out. And this is something that's kind of interesting. Um, I was the very first person he ever put in the Marine Corps. Um, he had been a machine gunner before that and had just been moved to the duty station of recruiter. And so I was the very first contract of anybody he submitted to the Marine Corps to have them join. Um, and uh, uh, this is the guy who said, you're oh, you're overweight? Nope. No. This is the one that was like, hey, there's no infantry spots. Like, got it. Um, I'll, and, I'll hit you up if there's something else that yeah. comes up. And, uh, and I got to respect him because when, when we actually had the conversation about me joining, I asked him, I was like, what's the infantry going to be like? And he goes, you're going to hate it. And I was like, what? And this is the dude that was a machine gunner. So he was in the infantry as well. And I was like, what do you mean I'm going to hate it? He's like, well, you're going to walk long distances for no reasons because they have trucks. Excuse me. Um, and then uh, he's like, you're going to carry heavy loads for no reason because they have trucks. You're going to be outside a lot. And in one case, I was outside sleeping on the ground and I could see the door to my barracks room. <laughs> But he warned me of all this stuff. And then he said, he's like, however, when you actually do your job, when you shoot the guns, when you blow up the explosives, when you do the the, the action movie stuff, right? He's like, you're going to love it. And he was spot on. There was so much drill and other like um, training that I hated. But when I actually got to shoot guns and do the stuff that looked cool to me, like I love the Marine Corps. Hmm. Yeah. So you joined the Marines? Yes, sir. Okay. And tell me about that experience. Um. It was awesome. I I joined the Marine Corps uh, because I was told that it would be the hardest, that it would be the most difficult. Uh, it was the most difficult branch. I had family members that were in the Marine Corps. And if any, anybody listening has ever met a Marine, they know what I'm talking about. There's like this weird, sometimes subtle, sometimes overbearing arrogance that just exudes from Marines. And I wanted to be that. I was like, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't met a SEAL or anybody's special forces yet. So I didn't even know that that was a thing, that there were people above people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but something about that, about the Marine the top, Corps. top yeah. dog, you wanted I, to be that. I have this desire inside of me to see if I can, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. can I do that? Like, will that break me? Can I make it through that? Like it, I've had it most of my life. Can I endure whatever's coming? Wow. And so the Marine Corps was that to me. It was two things. It was like, can I do this? Am I capable of this? And it was opening doors to, to a possibility. Uh, of something better like so I another reason I joined is um when Frank asked me to go talk to the recruiter um I 
kind of reviewed my life and I, my, my uncle had been talking to me. He's like, Hey, you're, you're doing real good. I'm going to, I'm going to start training you to do this and that. And so like, we were in a transition of, of me moving up in the company and, and kind of tracking me to take over the company eventually. And so I'm sitting there 19, looking at him, looking at life, looking around. And I'm like, I don't want this. I don't want manual labor my whole life. Like, mm. and this, so the Marine Corps was a way out like college and some other things. It was an opportunity. Um, and so when I went to the, to boot camp, I was super excited about it. And, and to be entirely honest, uh, I had to cut weight to join the Marine Corps. Um, I, they wanted me to be 203 pounds and I weighed 233 pounds. I thought I had more time to, before I was going to go to boot camp, but my recruiter called me one day and said, Hey, we had a guy back out like, or something happened. I don't remember. Can you move your ship date up? And I was like, yeah. And so he knew that I, that I needed to lose weight. He's like, He's like, all right. He's like, can you like never asked me what I weighed, but he just said, can you make it? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And so I had four weeks to lose to lose 30 pounds. Did your wrestling help? Yeah. <laughs> Did your um, wrestling experience? Help? And uh, I wish that my, my wife lot. was here because she'll tell you. And if people in uh, Ronan will tell you that they saw me running with trash bags on my uh, over my body. And like um, I would drink uh, eight to 16 ounces of water a day and uh, eat an orange. And that's what I consumed for like the last week. And like I slowly bracketed it down until like I felt like I was almost dying. But I went to uh, MEPS, went to boot camp. Um, and this is a funny story, too. So. Uh, they take you down in the bottom of the building where um, like there's a pull-up bar where everybody's supposed to go do pull-ups because that's what Marines do in their, in their fitness tests. And you have to do a minimum of three to join. And so it's, uh, it's kind of this like thing of pride, like how you see um, some parents walking around soccer games and like, you see the fast one, that's mine. Like, mm -hmm. And so it's like, oh, my, my recruit's better than your recruit. And so oh. it, um, there's guys doing 10 pull-ups and 20 pull-ups and stuff like that. And so like, I get up to the bar and I look at my recruiter and I'm like, how many do I have to do? <laughs> and he's like, you have to do three. And I was like, cool. He's like, you're going to do more though, right? I was like, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> sure. And so I do the first pull-up, no problem. I do the second pull-up and I like act like I'm shaking, like I'm shaking really hard. And then I get, I pull it up. And then the third one, I sit at the bottom and just let my arms quake. And then I pull up fast and let go of the bar and the whole room like you could have heard crickets i get like and my recruiter's like that's it and i was like that's all i had to do isn't it and, like, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh it, he ended up laughing at it later he's like that was probably the most infantry thing i've heard of you were like no i'm not playing your game i did what i had to do let me go <laughs> yeah um but uh i'll never forget after i weighed <laughs> in and everything i went to the um the vending machine in MEPS and I spent like $35 buying snacks out of a vending machine and just sat there eating stuff. You got you to gotta get back to that I tried to, weight, right? Yeah, I tried to. <laughs> uh, you know, after weighing, uh, you know, get them calories back in you. But uh, went from there, went to, to boot camp in San Diego uh, at MCRD Mar Marine Recruit Depot San Diego. Um, or Marine Corps Recruit Depot, sorry for anybody that's going to come at me for saying that wrong. Um and uh, you look like you're going to ask a question. You just moving your hand? No, 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 okay. no, no. Um, the worst thing about that place is that it shares a fence with the airport. And uh, I had never been – so at this point in time, I'd only ever been out of Montana to maybe go to Washington. I, I went to Florida once when I was a little, little kid, um, but hadn't been anywhere else. And so I'd land in San Diego – First time ever being on a plane by myself, like all this stuff. Like we go to um, 
the USO. Actually, I want to back up. You get a battle buddy. This thing bothered me throughout the entire time at boot camp. You get a battle buddy that travels with you. This guy was from Idaho. And so like we flew together and the Department of Defense gives you uh, money vouchers to be able to buy food and stuff. He was nervous the whole time, like every connecting flight we had. So like immediately just run to the next plane, get on the plane. It's like we never ate anything. And then when we land here in San Diego, like we're walking through the or land there in San Diego, we're walking through the airport and I see a Chili's and I'm like, bro, we got free money. Let's go. No, no, no. We got to get to the USO, man. I don't want to. And so he was in my platoon. And so for the next three and a half months, every time we got thrashed, I kept yelling at him. We could have had Chili's because <laughs> I was so upset about it. Um but so your experience in in the Marines sounds like it started off like your cup of tea. Like I'm I'm this is the hardest thing. Oh, it was and, awesome, and I can do it. Yeah. How uh, you mentioned just just kind of this culture of drinking and mm-hmm. did that continue for you through the Marine Corps? No. Did it? Did, were you because you said it's you can t- you could take it or leave it. So yeah, at that point you're just like I'm I'm I I'll dr- just leave it. I drank sometimes. Like don't get me wrong, I would go party with the boys, but. Yeah. Um, once again, the Marine Corps is a culture of alcoholism. I mean, it was founded in a bar in Tun Tavern, Philadelphia. <laughs> and mm. so, um, like a lot of people drink and, and by this time I joined the Marine Corps at 19, like I'd been drinking regularly for two or three years. I mean, like nightly, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, I didn't have that, the lust that the other people did that just got out from their parents' thumb. They're like, Oh no, let's get drunk. You're 21. Can you buy? Like, I didn't have that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I it have, wasn't a novelty to you. It wasn't like this. New no, it wasn't like thing. the first time I got let out after curfew. Like, oh, were you having like, no, yeah. like, um, and so it was it was different to me. And I'd already kind of learned how to drink like an adult because growing up drinking around my my uncles and stuff like that. Like if you didn't drink like an adult, then you couldn't drink again with them. Like they, you couldn't be dumb throwing up and doing other stuff like that. Like you had to act according. And so, um, which sounds super weird to ask a teenager, like, Hey, I realize that you're a little kid, but if you get drunk, you act right. Like it's super weird. Uh, Um, and, and they didn't, I had some uncles that didn't really condone it. It was mainly cousins, but it was the same thing. Like just, and so, um, but I did drink some there. Uh, but another reason I didn't drink is I have this incessant like feeling that I'm not good enough. Um, at anything I do, like nothing I ever feel is great enough. And so I'd wanted to be, from when I got out of the boot camp and, and went to the fleet in the Marine Corps, like I wanted to be in the Marine Corps for until they told me I had to leave. The Marine Corps made sense to me. Um, and then the Marine Corps was always yelling at me for being overweight. They're like, hey, like um, you weigh too much. And I'd get taped and my, my body fat would be okay and everything. But you weigh too much. You weigh too much. And so I didn't. I did what I could to make sure that they didn't have any more ammo to fire at me other than I was overweight. Hmm. I went to every school I could. I wanted to be like the the highest achiever I could. I wanted to do everything I could to try to be the best. Like, um, and I never felt like I was. And oh. so, um, constantly drinking and stuff like that didn't, didn't align with that. Sure. So tell me, um, what, uh, you go through all the training, you have your first, uh, deployment, um, I assume, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Your your first deployment, where was it, and and then yeah, kind of tell me more about your service. Which, by the way, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I went through the way that 
the Marine Corps works, or the, the Marine Corps infantry, to be more specific. You go through boot camp, and then from boot, uh, boot camp, you go through the School of Infantry, where you're taught how to be an infantryman. Um, and then from there, you'll be assigned a unit. I was signed, uh, assigned 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment in San Mateo on Camp Pendleton. Um, I was with them for about a year uh, doing, or more than that, I guess, but we did a bunch of training. Um, and then we went to Sangin, Afghanistan, September 28th of 2010. Um, is when I got on the plane in Maryland and flew over there. And then, uh, side note, I turned 21 September 18th of 2010. So mm-hmm. 10 days before I deployed, I turned 21. Wow. Um, went over there and uh, then did uh, some combat, in, or some counterinsurgency, sorry. And uh, what that means is that they wanted me to go befriend the locals and figure out where the Taliban was. Yeah. So we could try to combat the Taliban. Um and combat was, it's an interesting place. It was, in my young life, one of the, the places that um, life made the most sense. And that's because, like, back here in our day-to-day lives, like, there's so many people that are playing an angle or that they're trying to do this. Are they being genuine? What are they actually trying to do? Well, I was in combat. It was very, very clear. Exactly. Like, oh, you don't like me. You have a gun. You do like me. Like, and it was the most black and white that life has ever been. And it was the, the simplest, if you will. Like, I didn't have, like, girl problems. I didn't have finance problems. I didn't have any of this. Like, my whole thing that I had to do was every morning I woke up, I had to live until I went to sleep that night. That's all I had to do. Wow. And it, and it made life really simple. And, um, and the friendships and the bonds that, that you make with those people and when you might die is super interesting that the you can't generate that intimacy any other way other than to, to steal um something that a buddy of mine said like uh if you want to know a man the best fight him like like there's a level of intimacy that you gain when both of you are exhausted when both of you are like i don't want to do this anymore but you're not done yet um and so like and then when you're fighting along next to those guys and you're watching them and and um I'll never forget the first time that uh, I watched an IED go off, that I saw that raw power. So before I went to Afghanistan, like, like I said, I'm, I'm 20, 21. Like, um, and so my mom and I are having this conversation about what, what do you want me to do with your stuff if you die? What do you want done with your body if you die? And I had no idea. And I, I, I even like comically deflected it and was like, I don't care. I'll be dead no 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 what do you want and and our family owns a hunting cabin like this is how far i took comically deflecting it i was like i want you to mount my head on the wall in our hunting cabin like like i complete like i'm dead serious wow. like I, because i couldn't grasp what it would be like to die as a kid yeah like and um i went to afghanistan thinking that there were only two options you come back and you die or i mean sorry you you go over and you come back or you go over and you die that those were the only two options oh and it wasn't until I saw the first IED detonate and I saw the first person's legs be ripped from them that I was like, whoa, there is something far worse out here than dying. Oh, my gosh. Um, and uh, it, was, it was wild like, because after that, all of us sat and had these like, conversations um, about like, hey, if I step on an IED, don't treat me. Just let me die. I don't want to live that life. Oh, my gosh. Um, there was so many people that said that. And nobody, did you say that? Um, 
Do you remember saying that? I didn't think that it was something that would occur to me. Sure. To be entirely honest. Sure. For some reason, I never accepted that as something that would happen. I didn't want to. Um, And like when I watched, because, yeah, I, I didn't, for most of my life, I haven't felt like luck or outer circumstance or other things like that play into things. I felt that it is, in, for the most part, entirely the person and the choices that they make mm. is how things unfold for them. And so I assume that most of the times that people got injured, like, oh, you stepped in the wrong place. You did this, you did that, which, which, uh, like you shouldn't have stepped there. Yeah. Which when we get to my story, it, it's interesting, the accountability I take for it. Um, and so I was just like, no, you pay attention and it won't happen. And then I had several close calls where like, uh, I had IEDs blow up. I was between them. Um, one blew up in front of me and I turned around to run away from it and one blew up behind me. Um, and like several close calls but nothing that ever hit me like and so then we're about four and a half months into the deployment and and uh marine corps deployments are only seven months we're not like the army that's out there for a year or something like that we're seven to eight months and they bring us home so i'm mostly through the deployment like uh, i got injured in Dece on december 11th of 2010 and they came home in april hmm. and so they only had three more months hmm. um and so uh we go how detailed do you want me to get with my story? Because I was conscious for most of it. Like I can tell what it looked like. Like, like what do you what, think your your well, listeners would enjoy? I think just they just want to hear from you. Okay. So you just, I mean, you lived this experience. So what? You know, I mean, I this isn't. I just want to hear what's real. Like, okay. What, so um, what, what happened? Okay. So December eleventh of two thousand and ten. Uh, it's a very easy date to remember, 12, 11, 10. I don't know why it happened to be in sequence that day or anything, but um, we were told that there was a farmer that had some IEDs near his house that he wanted detonated so his kids didn't step on him. So that's why I said counterinsurgency. Like, um, A lot of people don't, I don't think, fully grasp. So when they think of the war in Afghanistan, they think of, of Taliban or Al-Qaeda or and then them fighting us. They don't realize that there's there's children there, that there's old people there, that there's all this stuff going on. And they don't realize that there's a small group of extremists that want to fight us. Nobody else does. Mm -hmm. Like you can go anywhere and find extremists of something. Yeah. And so this guy was trying to genuinely make it a safer place for his kids. Like, hey, these are here. Will you get rid of them? When he told us that, I didn't feel like it was that way at first. The area kind of looked funky and everything, but it ended up being completely okay. We walked out there, we blew up the IEDs in place, and we were on our way back. And um, on our way back, we stepped off of this road onto, uh, whatchamacallit, a, it's a ridge is the word I'm looking for, um, onto a ridge. So we step off of a road that they had been driving on onto this ridge that we had walked up. Our patrol base can see it, and so it's safe for us to, to backtrack our track because um, the Taliban actually did all of the insurgent fighters. I don't know if all of them all the way at the bottom, but they're incredibly tenacious and incredibly intelligent. They know what we're going to do before we do it. They've been, they fought us for 20 years. Like they knew, they knew our playbook forward and backwards. When right before I deployed, they had to tell me to do things differently than the school of infantry taught me because they're like, no, no, no. Like, if you get shot at, don't run to cover because they put IEDs where cover are. So they will shoot at you to make you follow your training and get hurt. <sighs> wow. Like, incredibly smart and tenacious yeah. people. Um, And so, yeah, 
they like if we couldn't have had people seeing um, our back when we like walked back down, then they they very commonly like if you walked a route, they would come behind you and they would plant an IED, and then when you came back out thinking it was clear, you would step on it. It was it was something they did all the time in Iraq and early Afghanistan, and so it became standard that you didn't follow the same route uh, back. Interestingly enough, I don't I still won't drive in the same route back. So if I drive down one road, like I will loop. Um, I never go down and back in the same route, even now. Uh, that you, now that you've been home, I, yeah, and I don't think still, uh, I don't think it's like a PTSD thing. It's just like a standard operate. Like, no, we're just we're gonna loop. Like, there's no, it's not down and back. I don't like to backtrack at all for any reason. Wow. Um, yeah. And I I don't think it's PTSD. It might be, or it's just some weird stuff. Who knows? But um, so we backtrack and we get off of the the road, and our patrol base can see us. Everything should be good. We get shot at, and I'm the last guy out of 20. Um, we've taken enough casualties that some of our uh, teams had been dissolved. Um, four days before this, one of my very good friends had been injured. Um, and I actually still, at the time, have his blood on my camis from uh, from treating him. Um, and uh, actually, this is important. Uh, the night he got injured, my buddy Tomasu and I are sitting up on post talking about Monty getting injured. And we said... Uh, what do we say to Monty? Like, and I, and I treated Monty. I said, like, what do we say to him, man? Like, like, how do we tell him it's okay? That, like, I'm sorry you don't have legs. That life's gonna be okay. How, are, how do we tell him to live that? Did he even survive once I got him on the helicopter? Like, did he like? And so there's all these things that I didn't know. And how do I like? This is a dude I loved. You know what I'm saying? Like, it even beyond like it, siblings loved. Like, it was a, a type of love that I hadn't felt. Like, um, and mm. and how do I tell him that it's okay? Uh and then four days later, I found out <laughs> how to tell him it's okay. Um, and so we get shot at. And uh, I turn around and I'm looking um, behind us because I'm the last guy. And so we have a, uh, 11 um, Marines and then nine Afghan National Army guys. And these guys um, were scary. Not scary like they were going to hurt us, but scary because they didn't pay attention. These guys would go out on patrol and smoke weed. Like they they weren't in my opinion, like there, if that makes sense. And when you make that, when you have the guy in front of you walking, um, your job is to try to step almost exactly where he did. Cause you know where his foot just made contact on the ground is safe. And so you have these Afghan national army guys sprinkled in between us that aren't paying attention. Like we literally had to tell them to stop smoking weed on patrols. Like, Hey, if you're going to do that, you can't come with us. Because they'd be out there and literally doing it while we're out. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we're in combat. I need you pretty clear-headed right now, bud. Wow. Um, and so uh, I don't know if they shifted off the path or whatever. Um, but I just I want to point out that, like, these are the people we were interacting with, the people that we were trying to train. And there were some that were great. And there were just some that were not, you know? Yeah. Um, so we take uh, we get shot at. And we're walking um, still. And... I stop and look in the rear, trying to figure out where the shot's coming from and everything. We can't figure it out. It's about 4.30 in the afternoon. It's about to start getting dark because it's in December. And so squad leader says to keep pushing. So there's a guy in front of me named Dodie and then myself. And Dodie and I decide that we should leapfrog. So meaning he would stay in place and then I would run past him and then I would look back so he could run past. That way if the guy popped up to shoot us again, we were ready. Um, we leapfrogged maybe twice and my ears felt funny all of a sudden and i'm like what um and i wasn't like what trying to figure it out because you'll understand why but um 
for the listeners and for you, if you ever had anybody slap both holes on a uh, football helmet or something and you get kind of discombobulated and you don't know what's going on, that's how I felt. And I felt kind of weightless briefly, like, like I was hovering. Um, and I'd been uh, thrown in the air. I don't know how high or, or, or even if I really had been, to be entirely honest, because what I'm about to tell you and, and our listeners is, um, is what I remember to be true. And, um, and I say that because after I get through this story, I'm going to tell uh, something that was told to me after I, uh, a, a couple years afterwards. Um, and so uh, I feel like I'm weightless and I slam into the ground and I'm sitting upright uh, on my butt in the um, crater. And I look down at my right leg In my right leg, I can see uh, exposed bone, what I think is tibia and fibia. And then my foot's missing. Um, and then my left leg just looks like hamburger with shoestrings and rubber bands kind of in it. And I can it just, it's just a mess. And then uh, a figure comes running through the dust and it's my corpsman. Uh, his name's Herrera. And uh, he's trying to get me to lay down. I won't lay down. And he finally grabs me by the, the flack and slams me on my back and starts to get to work on me. Um, the first thing he does is he gives me uh, an IV and some morphine. Before he gave me morphine, um, I didn't. I couldn't really feel anything. I, um, for those of you that don't know, the way that the, the brain's uh, nerve system works is it's a lot like traffic. It will send uh, a car to the brain to tell the brain what's going on. And if there's too many cars on the road, then the brain never gets the signals. And so traffic was moving very, very slowly. But um, when he gave me the morphine, it slowed everything down enough that traffic was able to start moving. And so I could feel, um, it felt like all my bones and my legs had been broken, exploding outwards. And then um, it felt like I was on fire. Like it felt like my lower legs and everything were on fire. Um, and so uh, I'm sitting there um, and they have the IV bag going. They put a tourniquet on my right leg and stuff it full of combat gauze. And combat gauze is gauze that, uh, regular gauze that has um, quick clot in it or a coagulating agent. So it'll help stop the bleeding as well as putting pressure on it. And then the left leg, um, they are getting tourniquets on it and stuffing it full of stuff. And uh, the stretcher arrives. My buddy Finney gets there with the stretcher. And um, I hear Herrera say, I can't get it to quit bleeding. I can't get it to quit bleeding. What he was referring to is uh, my left leg. He couldn't get my left leg to quit bleeding. He put two tourniquets on it, and he had shoved it full of combat gauze, and it just wouldn't quit bleeding. There was still blood coming out. And that was because... um, when my femur shifted, it had slipped my femoral artery. It didn't sever it, but it cut it enough that it, there was blood pumping out. Um, and so the, the, the listeners can't see, but my left leg is, is amputated at my hip on the left side um, because they ended up having to go in above my uh, pelvis while I was in the helicopter and cut my femoral artery um, in my pelvis and clamp it. I still have a little metal clamp that clamps my femoral artery off in my pelvis. And then... Uh, for you guys listening as well, my right leg ended up being uh, amputated above my knee. Uh, but it was also when they were getting me on the stretcher that I noticed my left hand was hurt. I hadn't noticed that before. And so uh, I, when I look at my hands, um, my pinky finger and ring finger on my left hand are completely gone. I was left-handed, so I was holding my gun with my my left hand up and my thumb behind the gun. And then the rest of the fingers wrapped around the, the pistol grip of my AR. And so when that blast went up my body, it tore off my two fingers and then dislocated my ring finger and middle finger and pulled them kind of up and backwards. 
and um, and it tore all the skin off the face of my hand and then dislocated my thumb and rotated it backwards. I didn't know that any of that had happened until I picked my hand up to try to get on the stretcher. And um, so they get me on the stretcher. They're carrying me down the, the hill, and the hill's pretty steep. And so um, once again, to try to be on the cleared path, everyone's trying to walk in as straight a line as they can. And so I ended up taking the IV bag from Herrera and was trying to hold it myself. But then the hill got steep, so I had to let go of the IV bag and hold the stretcher, tore the IV uh, bag out. And um, I always tell this part because it kind of lightens the mood. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to figure out how to tell it as PG as possible. Um, so while we're going down the, the hill, I asked Tomasu, who's behind me, I was like, dude, like, my legs are gone. Like, they hurt. They're not there anymore. He's like, they're gone, bro. And so then I asked him the next most important question that everybody that, that has ever stepped on an IED that I treated asked me, is my stuff still there, bro? Oh, my gosh. And he goes, I didn't check. And when I tell you that I was offended, <laughs> like, um, side note, it, uh, I did have some testicular injury, but everything else is there. Um, and uh, I'm in the process of trying to have kids. I do still uh, produce some sperm, so hopefully I can make a little Tommy. Wow. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, so they get me to the, the, the truck <coughs> and, um, uh, this is where things kind of start to get fuzzy. And so they get me to the truck and I can remember a couple things. One, the, the corpsman's name is also Parker and uh, they put me on the truck and he, um, tells me that I cannot go to sleep, that I will die. And I tell him, no, 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 I just need a nap. I'm good. I just need a nap. And uh, he's like, no, you will die if you sleep. And so from the truck to the helicopter, every time I closed my eyes, he slapped me so hard it felt like my soul came out of me. But I could still be alive just because of him slapping me a bunch. Um, and so then they got me on the helicopter, got me to uh, Bethesda. or I mean, got me on the helicopter, took me. And like, and between December 11th and December 14th, um, I was made unconscious and flown to America. And then I woke up December 14th in a hospital bed in Bethesda, Maryland, um, with my mom and my uncle in the room. And I thought I was in Afghanistan. I was like, you guys can't be here. Um, and I kind of panicked and freaked out a little bit and everything. And they put me back to sleep. And I don't know if I woke up later that day or the next morning. And so that's everything that I remember from this story. And now we're going to back up in the story a little bit. So right before I got on the truck, um, my buddy Finney, that was carrying the stretcher, asked me how I was doing. And, um, and he didn't tell me this until like, we're talking seven, eight years later, like until after I got sober from drugs that he told me this, uh, he's like, do you know, do you remember talking to me when you got on the truck? I was like, I don't bro. He's like, um, okay, well I asked you how you were doing and you told me thumbs up all day, bro. Man. And so I just think oh. that was an interesting part because, uh, it made me realize that what, um, what I believe to have been true and what might have really happened. Like it's, it's all ethereal, man. Like I have no idea if what I just told you is truly what happened, but that's what I remember to be true. Wow. Wow. I mean, wow. It's uh, I, I understand the the sentiment that you're you're trying to get across with wow but at the same time we have to we have to understand as Americans as people 
um, that when we when we go to war, this is what happens. Like, it doesn't matter what we're going to war for, whether it's over religion, money, women, whatever it is. This is what happens. People send people to fight a battle they don't want to. Um, and I'm okay with the fact I got sent to do that. I joined knowing that that was a possibility. I joined the Marine Corps during a wartime. But the only reason that I bring this up is because like, America's in turmoil right now. There's all sorts of craziness going on all over the world. Understand that if we decide to step into this again, that we will send sons and daughters to a foreign land to potentially end up like I did. And as long as whoever's sending them is okay with that, then that's okay. Like, and, I, and I bring this up because one of my biggest problems with, with my Afghanistan deployment um, for hundreds, for thousands of years, human beings have been fighting over resources, land, water, food, whatever, okay? That's okay. I understand that. While I was in Afghanistan, 25 people gave their lives for land we were fighting on, on, on the American side and countless on the Afghan side, both insurgents and civilians, um, for resources neither were able to keep. There's no Marines where I was in Afghanistan anymore. Even before we did the full pullout a little while ago, there were no Marines where I was. I got asked the question, like, so is your sacrifice worth it then? Um, yes. While I was there, the young people and some of the other people were able to see what the life would be like out from under that, the tyrannous rule of the Taliban. We opened some bazaars, some little kids were able to go back to school, little girls were able to go back to school. There's a whole culture over there where, where women can't go learn anything or do anything um, because they're, they're not, they might as well be furniture to those people. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so they were able to go to school and we opened bazaars. And so they were able to see a difference that they could go get now if they wanted to. And so I feel there was, like I made an impact there. At least while I was there. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Tommy, that's... That's so powerful. This just a realization of what war really is, mm -hmm. and especially what's going on over in Israel and the Gaza Strip. It's like it's just it's, it's horrendous. War. Actually, I'm not just gonna say war. Violence is a heinous necessity at times, but I think that. Um, some people forget that it it might it's always an option but it's not always the answer yeah um and to quote uh a rapper named kevin gates um uh be careful killing when or be careful taking something you have not the power to give back and so when you take a life you don't have the power to give that back and so um i and i truly believe this that there is never a good time for human life to be taken. I don't think so. Um, but if you push me, I will. Like, I don't, and, and so I think that more people should understand that. Like, I don't want, there's, there's not a person in the world that I want, that I ish, or that I wish yeah. ill to. There's yeah. not. I hope that whatever struggles they were going through when they might have harmed me or whatever, that they figure it out. Yeah. I don't even, I'm not even upset at the Taliban for planting the bomb. And this is what I was talking about, about accountability earlier. I joined the Marine Corps. So we can go all the way back to like start my initial choice that led to this. I signed the Marine Corps contract. 
I went like through all the boot camp and everything. I got on the plane to go to Afghanistan. A bunch of people are like, oh, well, you had to. No, we had dudes. That, like, I had a guy that somehow both of his feet got ran over by his wife with their car. I'm not even joking. Both feet. I go, well, I guess I can't. He's double booted up. Like, he didn't want to go to Afghanistan. Had a guy fall off the third-story balcony. Like, <laughs> the only guy the entire time I was in the Marine Corps that fell off the balcony happened to be a month before we deployed. Mm. Um, and so there were ways to avoid this. But I couldn't let my friends go get in a fight without me being there. And so I have to keep that accountability all the way through. Like, I joined the Marine Corps. This is an option that I didn't know could happen, but it happened. So I can't be mad at the Taliban or the Marine Corps or anything. Just like I can't expect America to carry me because of that. Like, oh, because I was a veteran and put on a uniform at one point in time, I'm super cool, and I get blooming onions on on uh, on Veterans Day at, at Outback Steakhouse and other stuff like that. Like, don't get me wrong. I really enjoy, and I think it's cool that, that companies try to help veterans. But I also think that at least my generation of veteran is kind of greedy at times. And, and they feel that they're owed stuff like that. Like, I'm not, man. I just joined the, I joined the Marine Corps to try to open some options. I didn't think I had any. Wow, there's a lot there. There's, wow. So, where to go next? I, you, you, what is what's recovery look like? So you've you're in this new situation of, you're a triple amputee. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't cover that. I do have the only thing I have left on my my left hand, folks, is uh, is my thumb. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I'm classified as a triple amputee. I spent seven weeks in Bethesda, um, and I had a surgery every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for those seven weeks. So in seven weeks, I had 35 surgeries. Um, and they weren't always like, there were revision surgeries and stuff like that. But every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I went under anesthesia. Um, my mom and my uncle stayed there the entire time. Absolutely incredible. They took shifts like, um, and I'm so grateful for, for my uncle, especially, um, Nothing against you, mom, if you listen to this, um, but he took night shift, okay? And so what night shift meant is that he didn't get the opportunity to meet, like, the the commandant to the Marine Corps and, and all the other um, people that like to come in and out of there. So, like, um, politicians and high-up people would, would always come to the wounded and see the wounded guys. And so my uncle never got the opportunity to cross paths with these people. But he would sit and uh, myself and the gentleman I said, Monty, that got blown up, uh, him and I ended up being in the same hotel room, actually. Or not hotel room. I don't know why I call it hotel. Hospital room. Um, and uh, um, and so my uncle like would be in there with us at night. And he did that because the nurses would come in and wake us up to check on us. And like we're talking like we're barely sleeping and all this other stuff. And my uncle's an old Vietnam Marine. Uh, um, or a Vietnam era Marine. He didn't, uh, he graduated boot camp the day they signed the Camp David Peace Accords. Um, but, uh, and really rugged man. And so like these nurses had come in and he just, nope, get, get out of here. They're fine. Get out. Like, and so he was like really like, um, dedicating himself to, to trying to help us. And I'm super grateful for it. And I think we're able to, to get some, some better healing because of it. Um, and I'm also grateful that, that Monty was there. Um, I woke up one morning crying. And I told him, um, and I was looking at him, and he's like, hey, this sucks, dude, but this is life now. And, uh, and his, his resolve um, was incredible. I was like, whoa, dude, like we're, <laughs> it hasn't even been a month, and we're okay with this now? Um, and I thought I was at that time. I was like, okay, yeah. 
Um, and I really tried to push myself, uh, within 10 days of getting injured, uh, I crawled out of my hospital bed the first time into a wheelchair and went out in the hallway and, and went around and everything. And, uh, when the, the nurses asked me why, When the nurses asked me why, like, I felt so driven to do that, I said I got tired of looking at the walls in my room. Like, I didn't have a reason. I just, I felt like I needed to move. Like, I had to, like, and tried to stay driven and go towards some things. Um, and then that lost its steam uh, when I got given pain pills, honestly. Um, so I was, be, I was being given um, intravenous narcotics the whole time I was as uh, inpatient. But then they flew me to, um, whatchamacallit, Balboa Naval Medical Center in San Diego. And I then spent another week inpatient there. And then uh, after I passed the test of capability, essentially, like could I get from my toilet or from my chair to the toilet, from my chair to the bed, like could I live with assistance, essentially, then I was able to go to outpatient treatment. And so you're now you're, <coughs> you're in San Diego. Yeah. You're yep. outpatient, so this is your seven weeks in Bethesda. So another two, two weeks. This is two months. Uh, so this is two months out. Two months post injury. Um, and then so right after I got re uh, released from inpatient, uh, this is important for what comes next. Um, I flew up to Montana. Like I said, I'm from a tiny, tiny town of like 2,100 people. They did a fundraiser for me in uh, the town I'm from. Uh, this might offend people, but uh, where I'm from, I'd forgot we were at war, in my opinion. Um, not just Ronan, but Montana. Um, because they are not necessarily forgot, but they hadn't seen the repercussions of war in a while. Like There hasn't been a war fought on America's homeland since the Civil War. Since, you know what I'm saying? Revolutionary War, like stuff where, where people are really able to see what's occurring. And so I came back. And so everyone's like, whoa, like you're a hero. Thank you. We want to help you, which I'm grateful for. But um, I let it fracture me kind of. Like they did a fundraiser for me. Um, 2,200 people showed up. They raised a good chunk of money and everything um, that was supposed to go towards uh, um, helping uh, with any offset of medical stuff I needed or uh, flying my mom down to take care of me or if my mom needed respite to swap out with somebody, stuff like that. Um, and they built an addition onto my mom's house for me to live into or live in with the money and everything. And so like the people really rallied behind and, and were super helpful. Went back and did that and then came back to, to California where I spent um, the next 18-ish months uh, trying to learn how to be disabled. Um, I also had a desire to try to finish my contract that I that I agreed to do. I was like, "No, I told you guys four. Let's see it through." Like, um, and so uh, I was doing good, and and everything was learning. Uh, going to my occupational therapy appointments, uh, had some tympanoplasties done, meaning they had to rebuild my eardrums because uh, the the weird feeling I got was my eardrum being blown in when I got blown up. Um, I still have pretty good hearing. I had no damage to the inner ear. It was just the eardrum itself that got ruptured, so they were able to replace that um, with muscle from my neck. Like the the medical practice is incredible. The stuff that they can do nowadays. Wow. Um, I learned occupational therapy. Uh, I'd said earlier I'm left hand. I was left handed. Um, taught myself to write right handed. Taught myself to to 
eat to to like little dexterity things um if you guys could see me i'm really good at eating now you can tell i'm kind of i'm just kidding no um but uh and so yeah like i was trying to learn all these things and then um life was was okay uh i was kind of starting to to abuse my pain pills a little bit at the time um and uh i had an uncle that um I have two amputees actually in my uh, lineage. Uh, I had an uncle that was an amputee, and then my grandpa we spoke about earlier lost his leg as well. Um, and so uh, my uncle that was an amputee, when he was first diagnosed, like they thought he was going to die. They're like, he's going to die within six months. He lived for 20 more years. Um, he had a, a thing called scleroderma. But so he was prescribed pain pills, and my whole family, I think even to this day, believes that he was a drug addict. Um, and he very well may have been, uh, but as a person that's been through some chronic pain and stuff like that, I really think he was trying to have a decent quality of life. Um, and, and he's since passed, but, um, so my mom had this fear of me becoming addicted to pain pills. So initially she had full control over him. She would give them to me when like, um, and every time I would ask for one, she would be like, do you want it or do you need it? And try to you know get that thinking like are you trying to make yourself feel better or do you actually hurt like um and so she did a pretty good job of keeping me in check until she went back to montana and she'd even done her due diligence to make sure that i didn't get a prescription anymore like when she left it i was completely weaned off of pain pills and everything everything was good um until it wasn't i went and played seated volleyball one day as, as a as a thing with the, the group and I rolled over my left hip kind of funny and I have what in there what's known as hydrosophic ostification um, which is a big word for a calcium deposit so when when bones break your body releases calcium cells to fuse the bone back together if your body can't find where the bone is broken the calcium cells solidify in place and so it makes like this weird bone like that's not fully bone What's not not bone, it has nerves and can hurt and stuff. And so I fractured it and there's nothing they can do. And so they gave me another prescription of, of uh, Oxycontin fives. And um, to quote another rapper named Doobie, um, painkillers don't work when the pain that you're killing is yourself. Um, and I didn't understand that. I learned very quickly that painkillers won't just kill physical pain. They will kill mental pain, emotional pain. If you take enough painkillers, you won't care about anything. And I started to, to do that. I started to, to crush them up and snort them and abuse them. And, and um, all while thinking I was being very, very sneaky. And, um, and so that was, that was kind of growing and getting, getting worse and worse. Um, and I was... Uh, yeah, and like I was okay. I was like I'm okay. I'm living in California. Um when I move back to Montana, I'll stop doing drugs. It's I'm just doing it here, you know. It's just a Cali thing and fully believed it. Fully believed it. And then um in early 2012, my dad killed himself. Um that's a weird way to just kind of drop that bomb. <laughs> um and uh he had two older daughters and um and then me and my little sister Johnny and uh, when I found out that he had killed himself, um, I flew to Hawaii and, and took care of his stuff and everything. Uh, but it was also around that time when the Marine Corps offered me my first retirement package. So I care. This is here's your medical retirement. And uh, while I was in Hawaii, like I was just 
I was overloaded. Like my dad, uh, and I didn't have a close relationship with my dad. This is a man that left when I was six, and I, I saw him when I was nineteen. Um, and then he came and saw me in the hospital when I got blown up. Like we didn't have a super close relationship. Um, I was more upset that he killed himself and didn't write a note to tell me what to do with his stuff. You know, like I just like, what do you, I don't have, you couldn't have got like the titles for your trucks together. Like, you own a construction company and I had to go try to figure all this out in Hawaii. Like where's all this paperwork? Like people tell me like, you couldn't have handled any of this. Like he bought a shotgun and waited for the approval from the state of Hawaii for him to get the shotgun and then use that. Like, so he knew this was coming. Um, Side note, this is something that does hurt me. So the night that he did it, um, he called me and uh, I picked up the phone um, and I was high and I didn't answer it. I looked at it. I was high on on pain pills or coke or something. And I was like, oh, I'll call my dad in the morning. Um, and then the next morning I got the call that he was dead. And so I don't know if I could have saved him. Um, I don't know if he was trying to say goodbye. I don't know. Uh, but I didn't give him the opportunity and that bothers me. Um, but, uh, so I started abusing these pain pills and everything. And I, and then, um, I signed my contract or I signed my retirement contract to get out and I went back to Montana and I thought everything's going to be good. I'm not going to use drugs anymore. Um, but I lied to myself. I, I immediately started looking for drug seeking behavior, like, um, and people that were, that acted like drug addicts. Like, and it wasn't very hard to find them. i uh, I live on a Native American reservation in Montana, um, and and the people that I thought would be doing drugs were the people that did drugs when I was in high school, so it wasn't hard to find them. Um, and I immediately just kind of fit in. And there was this weird duality to it because none of the drug people liked the fact that I was doing drugs because I was super highlighted in the area as being a war hero and this incredible person and all this. And so like I was being a low life while most of the local society saw me as this this hero. And so it was it was really weird and, and it caused me to um create a facade that in ultimately ended up fracturing me. Um I would act a certain way whenever I saw people like um, because I got told right off the get like oh you're the same old Tommy you're still funny and mo like it's so motivating to see you be the same dude post-injury and so I thought that's who I had to be mm. and so I created this thing of like oh I have to be motivating I have to be this for people I have to be that for people and so I was never authentic and so it made it very easy for me to willingly lie and hide my addiction because I was lying about everything else putting on fake smiles and all this stuff. And so that went on for a while. Like we're talking, I joined the, um, or I left the Marine Corps in 2012 and I didn't go to my first treatment center until 2015. Um, and for rehabilitation for, yeah, yeah. For, for drug, addiction. drug rehab. Yeah. Yeah. Um, until 2015 and, um, right before I went to the first treatment center was when people were kind of starting to, to question some things. Um, a girl that I had been with for, for quite a while was like, no, I'm done. And she couldn't handle my addiction anymore. Um, her and, and her uh, two beautiful girls, they, they took off. And, um, and I don't blame them, man. I wasn't in, I wasn't in a place to, to, uh, to be a dad, to be a father. I, I couldn't figure out how to, how to live my own life. And, and I feel bad for that as well. Um, they're good girls that deserve better than what I gave them at the time. Um, but, uh, them leaving so 
So they left and I went to treatment the first time. And I went to treatment because I wanted my life back. Not because I truly wanted to be sober. I just wanted my life back. I wanted the girls. I wanted her back. I wanted that stuff. Um, and uh, I went to treatment. And I reached out to her after treatment. Or the the last day I was in treatment, I reached out to her. And I'm like, hey, man, I went to treatment and everything. Like, I'm about to get out tomorrow. Like, and I come back. Like, I don't expect you to, to date me or any of that stuff. But can I be your friend? And she's she said, I, she's like that that chapter in our lives have closed is closed. Looking back, I think that she was trying to to protect herself and the kids. Like it was, like we're, I was in treatment for twenty eight days. Like there's no real change that happens in that amount of time. Um, but that statement hurt me. But it also gave me permission. Um, I went back home and I immediately relapsed. Because I didn't, I didn't try to get sober for me. Like I said, I wanted to. And so I immediately relapsed. But it also made it so I didn't have to, I didn't care anymore. Like I'd been to treatment. People knew that I was a drug addict. People knew that I was struggling with this. So I used the term drug addict and I took the power out of it that anybody could use. Um, by, I would call myself a drug addict. I labeled myself a drug addict. Because like people like, oh, you're a drug addict. I'm like, oh, that kind of hurt. But when I started calling me myself that, like, and even worse, when I moved on to, to meth and heroin and started becoming a junkie or using needles, and I would say statements like, oh, I just do what junkies do. Like, you couldn't hurt me. But it also gave me permission to get worse and worse and worse. I use it as a permission slip. Like, hey, it's okay for me to be a bad person. I'm a junkie. Like, no. It, it, hmm. um, but that's when that started and so um i got worse and i and i moved from from pain pills to heroin um and then uh in what you call it so i'd also been given a house by a nonprofit during this time and uh december 11th of 2016 so that's that, 6 years to after the day. to the day to the day cuz it was 12 11 10 yep um, my house got raided by the Lake County Sheriff's Department. And um, it was in conjunction with a intervention that Monty had prepared, the guy that I treated in Afghanistan. Um, I had reached out to him to try to borrow some money from him, which he thought was kind of weird. And so uh, he was like, he started hitting up other guys. And then other guys have been like, yeah, he'd asked me for money or he did. And they're like, and they're like oh, okay. Like, and so... Um, that my house got raided by the sheriff's department and then a bunch of other cars come in and um like dudes i was in afghanistan with come into my house and um they all had like prepared letters and everything like the the tv show intervention like we're talking spot on it was just like that like mm. my siblings are there my my little sisters and are there at everything and um i refused to take it serious i had uh uh, track marks or for those of you that don't know what those are bruises from shooting up um from wrist to my jaw like i'd shot up in my neck at the time and i told them i don't have a problem well i'm covered in in bruises um i had uh what is known as a tutor or drug paraphernalia to, to snort stuff with sitting on top of my ear like you would carry a pen around like no i don't i don't, I don't have a problem like 
and they started to pull out their their letters and read their prepared stuff and I, I would comically interject in stuff that they were saying or try to and in some cases completely just be disrespectful and like why did you come here me and you didn't like each other when we were in the marine corps why are you here um i refused to take any acknowledgement like of of what they were trying to do um looking back and i've told several of them since like thank you uh, James Finney, the guy that carried my stretcher, was there as well. So he has um, tried to save my life twice. And I'm thankful for that. Um, and uh, uh, But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't take it serious. Um, and because my house got raided, the nonprofit took it, which it was, it was in the contract. It said, don't break the law. Like, I broke the law. So I lost the house. Um, and uh, I became homeless. Um and I have to add by choice. Like, I had enough resources that I could have got a place to stay or something like that. But I was on, I've never said it this way, um, the most self-destructive path I could have set myself on. I willingly chose narcotics over everything, relationships, anything. Oh, I have to actually back up because, um, so Monty showed up to that intervention and drove me from Montana to Wyoming to go to a treatment center in Wyoming. Um, and, uh, they were supposed to, everything was supposed to be set up. I show up at the VA treatment center and, um, somehow there was a snafu and they weren't prepared for me. Um, and also I had, I had drugs on me. Um, I'd, I'd, uh, gotten heroin out of my house and took it with me um, without anybody knowing uh, Monty was suspicious but nobody else uh, knew Monty and Gall the two people in the car with me were suspicious but nobody else really knew um, and I, it was actually in my wheelchair cushion um, and I bring that up because when we got to the hospital um, Monty and Gall specifically asked the hospital staff will you check his cushion and they're like no we don't do that and so um, Monty and and Gall leave and um, while in the hospital, I overdosed on heroin that was in my ho- in my cushion. Wow. Um, and so the nurse came in, they Narcaned me and everything. And then, um, so I went to treatment under the belief that uh, they had, that everything with the warrant was, or not with the warrant, with the raid was legitimate. And that I was like, um, they were willing to, to not have me get any charges if I went they're like hey we're trying to help you like the stuff we found when we raided your house it's is no and void if you'll go to treatment and work with us and blah, blah like okay like um come to find out they didn't have a warrant what what had really happened is the cop had kind of weaseled his way into coming in my house under protection for the marines to make sure that they were safe when they came into my house because i was dangerous um which some of the marines were like bro you might be dangerous but not to us like and so uh, they didn't have a warrant. So nothing that they found mm. could stick. And so um, I left treatment, AMA. Because you figured that out? Yeah, my attorney told me. Yeah, he's like, they don't have a warrant. I was like, what does that mean? He's like, they can't charge you with anything. They, they illegally entered your house. Oh, and I was like, I'm going to leave this treatment then because I'm only here because I thought I would not get in trouble. He's like, if you do that, it will put a target on your back. I was like, okay, and I left. Um, I had the girl I was dating at the time drive from Montana to Wyoming through a winter weather advisory to come get me out of the hospital. Um, and where you just had overdosed. Yep. Yep. 
Um, and I had her bring drugs cause I didn't want to be sober. Um, but after that overdose, I didn't do heroin anymore. Um, <laughs> and, uh, when I've given a speech saying that part, I pause and then usually say only meth. Um, so I, after that, I, I was kind of using meth before that, but after that I never used heroin again because, uh, I realized like, oh wow, I'm not going to do that. Like I almost died with that stuff. Let's just bang meth instead, which I don't know how my brain thought that shooting up meth was better than shooting up heroin, but that's what it truly believed. Yeah. Um, she came down and got me and everything. I immediately did, uh, did meth and then went and stole a bunch of stuff from Walmart. Um, and I mean like, while high on, oh yeah, like an absurd amount. Like I pushed out full shopping carts and I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just trying to like a paint a picture of what, of what my brain was thinking was a good idea at the time. Um, and, and so you're pushing out full shopping carts, a full shopping cart. Yeah. Of product yeah. that you haven't paid for, nope. right out the front door. Yeah. Cameras. Yeah. Employees. Yeah. I ended up getting like, caught and getting in is, trouble and this stuff. This is a good idea. Yeah. I, I ended up getting caught and getting in trouble and stuff. But my brain believed it was a good idea, without wow. a doubt. My brain's like, we should, we should steal. We should do this. And under the belief that I was trying to do something good for um, some people in my life because Christmas was coming soon. I'm dead serious. Wow. This was altruistic. Yeah. Like, oh, these like, need they need Christmas presents. Like yeah. the weirdest stuff ever. Yeah. Um, and it was wrong. It was so messed up, but that's, that is, that was your state of mind. That was, yeah. At the time. Um, and, uh, I come back up to Montana, um, and, and everything. And so I had been able to use clout or, or, um, veteran status or something to kind of circumnavigate every time something had been thrown at me, if like a charge or, or everything, but after they raided my house the first time, um, now everybody was aware that Tommy's a problem. Before that, like I was able to kind of, ah, you know, and just kind of like him and hot and people like, oh, we understand. Um, but now I'd, I was made aware and I had a target on my back. And so um, I got as soon as I got back to Montana from Wyoming, they ra- the sheriff's office raided my house again looking for the stolen stuff. Don't steal from Walmart. Like their stop loss is national. Like they put out a bolo to try to find me. The Walmart from where I'm from are like, yeah, we know him. He tries to steal stuff here all the time. And wow, yeah, and like uh, raided my house immediately. Bang, bang, bang. It was in like uh, astounding. Like it was like a, a coordinated military operation. It blew my wow. mind from Walmart. Yeah. Um, wow. And, and so, so they're so now they're raiding your house. Yeah. With a warrant. Yeah, and so that and um. And then they ended up uh, raiding my house a third time. Uh, it was March 16th or something like that. Um, and uh, and this time they had a legitimate warrant. They they raided my house at midnight. Um, some people had told on me, and I kind of felt like it was coming. Uh, there was just a bunch of weirdness. There were a couple people that I felt were acting weird. And so... Um, I loaded them with false information. I told them that I just got a huge shipment. I had a bunch of drugs, blah, blah, blah. And um, within 45 minutes, my house got raided after telling that. He's like, you really have some right now? Like, I could go. I'm like, yeah, bro. And my house got raided within 45 minutes. Um, the kid has since admitted, he's like, I, I told on you. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I was scared. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, you can be scared, bro. Um, but, and so, yeah, I got raided. I got... Uh, I got arrested and and um, I brought if a, you. If you were, you, did you have? No, I didn't have anything. Uh, but they did find. Um, I, and this is still weird to me. 
Uh, so even like we had, we had talked about my mindset and everything. So I was dating a girl that had kids, um, and they would come to my, the kids would come to my house sometimes and everything. And so, um, and, and she was using as well, but, uh, I had been using for so long that I had like these weird guidelines, um, that I, that I put in place. So like you couldn't do drugs in my house except in my master bathroom, because that is the only place in the house that I wouldn't let the kids go. So there wasn't a chance of them crossing with paraphernalia or, or other narcotics or because like meth is a, is a disgusting substance that like it'll seep out of your skin. It'll do like and it can be easily absorbed. And you hear horrible stories about kids fine and stuff like that all the time. So I I did my absolute best to keep everything in check. Like um, when I use needles, like I would carry like hard plastic like bottles or stuff in my uh, in a bag. And like I would put the needle directly in that bottle and then like um, like. You had process. That, yeah, to, to try to mitigate somebody like um, somebody accidentally falling into something I didn't want them to. Like I'd, I knew that I was destroying my own life, but I didn't want to destroy other people's lives that, that didn't understand what they were doing. Wow. Um, and so they find a loaded syringe in the living room, um, the allegedly stuck into a curtain or something weird. I don't know where it was at. I wasn't in the living room when they found it. Um, and I had told the people that lived with me that if anything happens, um, I'll take accountability for it. Like just, I need you to trust me and I will, if they find anything or whatever, it's mine. And so that's what I did. Like they come out, um, and they're like, what is this? And I was like, that looks like a syringe with heroin in it. And they're like, well, whose is it? And I was like, mine. And they're like, whose? And I was like, <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's funny cause there's body cam footage of me saying, uh, that is a syringe full of heroin liquid and it belongs to me, Tommy Parker. Wow. And my attorney, when he saw it, he's like, why? He's like, I can't do anything about this. He's like, you're screwed. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I got arrested and taken um, immediately to jail. And uh, my arrogance of everything that I had kind of slipped before, when I got to jail, um, I got to Lake County Jail. Like, and I, I call it the dungeon. It's subterranean. It's beneath the, the courthouse. Um, and they take me back and like, they give me some orange and I was like, Oh, I'm not going to be needing that. I'll be out soon. And they're like, no, you're, you're staying here this time. Um, it was terrifying. Uh, I got put into isolation. Um, I was coming down from meth. Like everything was just utterly terrifying. Um, and I hated it. I was like crying and freaking out. And like, um, because meth, at least for me, I didn't have a physical withdrawal, but I'd had like this weird psychic, uh, psychiatric withdrawal almost like I felt like the joker off of uh, Batman like laugh crying and like weird stuff and having weird dreams and everything and then this dude named Justin that was a, a guard there that I've known for most of my life one day uh, he comes in I've been in for like five days he comes in and um, he's like Parker we're gonna take a shower and I'm like what no like and he rips my blanket off of me and grabs my shoulder and like rolls me and kind of forces me into my wheelchair and pushes me to the shower room um and he pulled me out of my my uh depression that i was like i was sinking deep like um in that hot shower and like his like uh aggressive caring like uh changed some things and uh interesting side note um he told me at the, that day, he's like, hey, I need you to get sober so so people like you can help me raise my boy. Um, and so his son is actually friends with my son um, and uh, uh, or my stepson. And so kind of cool full circle that like this man, like 
saw me in my lowest and he's like no i'm gonna need you later to help with my boy like wow and so i think that's cool um they ended up letting me out of that uh, out of jail to go to treatment again um uh, because it, the court system, I think, was genuinely saw a veteran that they saw damaged. And they're like, we should try to help this guy. And they didn't fully understand that I was, I knew what was going on. You know what I'm saying? I was playing the game a bit. Um, I go down to treatment in Louisiana. Um, they sent me further away from Montana this time so I wouldn't run. Um, but they also told me that if something ha- wrong happened at this treatment, that I would just go to jail that I wouldn't get another treatment or anything like that. Um, I tried to get drugs snuck into the treatment center in Louisiana. There was a guy that I was there with. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm from around here. I could have people throw drugs over the fence. And I was like, well, what's, what's up then? I don't. And then he told on me. And then like, uh, and then the, the treatment staff's like, uh, they're like, you could go back to jail. I was like, send me. Like, I can't. Like, you expect me to be vulnerable here with people telling on me? Nah, send me back. I never went back to jail. They ended up letting me stay. Um, but, um, I went through that treatment center and I came back to Montana and I relapsed. I just, I did that again and again and again. Um, and so we don't have to, I've been to nine treatment centers and every single treatment center I would come back and I would relapse. Bang, 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 bang until the last one. So let me, let me pause you there. Yeah. Um, I think we should take a break mm-hmm. and I think we should, uh, I think this is going to be a two episode cause this is some, this is amazing. So let's take a little break. Yes, sir. And then uh, we'll come right back at it. Okay. Hang tight, listeners, and uh, we'll come back at you with the next episode.